for listening to the show, whether it be you're on a leisurely stroll while social distancing, or perhaps grocery shopping while social distancing, or if you're just cleaning up your counter because you're afraid you got a virus on there that they're discovering may live up to 17 days, is what I just heard five minutes ago. We're living in a crazy time. I haven't left my apartment other than to walk my dogs for two weeks, so I won't lie to you. I'm going a little batty. (laughs) Uh, If you like my theme music there, that is a song by Ken Vandermark. It is called Turn Your Head. It's from his album Utility Hitter, and that is copyrighted, 21st Mobile, ASCAP. I have been saying copywritten, but friend and listener, Margaret Saudi Kramer, who is in licensing, corrected me and said it's copyrighted. And she is partner of two-time guest Wayne Kramer. So they know what they're talking about. They're in the music world. Today's guest is Christian Picciolini. He has a new book out called Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. He also has another book called White American Youth. I read both books prior to this interview. Both of these books are incredibly well-written, very intense. They take you on an emotional ride, and I I couldn't put them down. They're incredible, incredible, incredible books. He also wrote a book called Romantic Violence, which honestly I have yet to read but it is high on the reading list because I am in love with these two books. And he's a great guest. He's a fellow Chicagoan. Uh, We talk about his life from being a a skinhead in Chicago, a Nazi skinhead, and now his new world and life and this book, Breaking Hate, which is about how he helps people get out of the life of extremism. It's a very great conversation. I'm very grateful he did it. Before we get into the talk, just a couple real quick things. If you're a first-time listener, I greatly appreciate you being here. It means a lot to me. I have almost 170 episodes at this point. Please go and peruse and see if you would like to listen to some more. I've talked to Black Panthers. I've talked to punk rock legends, literary legends, activist legends like Paul Krasner, some jazz legends like Ken Vandermark, who does my theme song, also a Chicagoan. If you like what you're hearing and you want to be a part of the community that is involved with Conversations with Matt Dwyer, if you want to hear more, you can become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer. I do commentary on every episode. I'm doing commentary on new, and I go back and I'm slowly compiling commentary on old episodes. There's photos. There's bonus episodes. I did one with um, Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live. You know, they're the, just a little something extra. And there's ten, the bonus episodes right now are a little bit more lighter than some of my more serious interviews that I've been doing. But there's photos and videos. I haven't been able to do any videos. I'm doing all my interviews now from home over the phone because uh, I don't know if you're aware. There's a deadly virus out there, and it's not friendly. Also, if you would like to have some merch, from the Matt Do- go to themattdwyer.com. That's a jumping-off point for everything. My social media, merch, if you buy a T-shirt or a coffee mug, take a picture of yourself having a hot cup of coffee in a Matt Dwyer shirt, Conversations with Matt Dwyer shirt, and uh, send it to me to conversationswithdwyer at gmail.com, and I'll post it up on the social media as a small thank you. I'll show the world your handsome face. If you like my podcast, listen to Hunk with Mike Bridenstein and Kilgallen's Pub with Joe Kilgallen. Those are two podcasts I greatly enjoy. And when I'm feeling crazy in the world, I find them very comforting. Uh, Now back to Christian Picciolini. I'm very excited about this episode. As I mentioned, we're both Chicagoans. Our lives had similar timelines. Um, When he got into the skinhead punk world is right around the time I was getting into improvisation, which um, a lot of people don't know this, but the improv world, also a little culty. <laughs> there is a there is a very weird cultiness about improv, but that's not what this podcast is about today. It is about Christian Picciolini. I am, it's a great conversation. He's a very fascinating guy. We had a couple uh, phone glitches just because he was, uh, I believe, on a cell phone or something, so we just had a couple fade outs, but it's fine. Hang in there. It's like a minimal problem in the episode, which is a great episode. So let's listen to 
my conversation with Christian Picciolini. I've read two of your books, both of them, uh, American, uh, White American Youth and your, your recent one, which they're both just fucking really intense books. Uh, and Thank you, man. Unable Brilliant. to put either of them down. I, I, I flew through both of them, and it, they're like... Uh, um, but just for my listeners who don't know, just to give a little bit of your background of what, what you came from uh, and how you got involved in the skinhead movement, which. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for that, man. I appreciate it. And thanks for reading. That, that means a lot to me. Um, yeah. You know, when I was 14 years old in, in 1987, uh, until I was, uh, you know, eight years later, uh, you know, my mid-early 20s and 23 years old, I was a member of America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. Um, started on the south side of Chicago in, in my hometown uh, of Blue Island. Uh, and at 14, I was kind of like this lonely kid, um, you know, came from a good family, an immigrant Italian family who settled, you know, on the southwest side of Chicago. And just felt kind of abandoned by them because I didn't really understand as a kid growing up, you know, that they were out seven days a week, 16 hours a day working to, you know, keep the family fucking surviving. Uh, and I couldn't really, you know, at that age understand why. So I was this kind of messed up punk kid who at 14 was standing in an alley smoking a joint. And this guy came up to me with a shaved head and with boots and, he pulled a joint from my mouth and he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's communists and Jews want you to do to keep you docile. And I have to tell you, Matt, I didn't know what the fuck a communist, you know, if I'd met a Jewish person or what the word docile meant at 14. Um, but it was still very attractive to me because it was the first person that I felt in my whole life had really kind of paid attention to me. Um, you know, I'd been bullied for most of um, my youth and didn't really have very many friends. And, you know, the ones I had weren't very good friends. And, and this guy kind of filled me with a sense of identity, community, and purpose. And he pulled me in. And it turned out that that guy was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader. And I'd been recruited into his gang that day. What do you think is pivotal? Um, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and I was just going to say, I spent eight years as, you know, as a, as a member and eventually as a leader uh, in, Amer you know, like uh, the early version, the earliest version of the youth white nationalist movement in America, you know, kind of version 1.0 of, of what people, uh, the world eventually saw in, in Charlottesville. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, and it's been 20 four years, I suppose, since I've, uh, I've left and I've been kind of speaking out against it and helping people disengage from, from what I was a part of. What is so crucial about that age uh, 14? Cause I've noticed not just with, from your book, but from my life and other people I know that that seems like a pivotal year where somebody, where you get involved yeah. in, be it born again, Christianity, as I stumbled into which <laughs> I got involved in a borderline cult and then I yeah. thankfully discovered uh, Second City which, yeah. but it's like it seems like such a pivotal year for awesome. especially young men to get pulled into something why is that? You know it's it's the age if you think about it like 13, 14, 15 is the magic age for radicalization into just about anything and, and I use the term radicalization really loosely because you know, it's when young people are breaking away from the dictatorship of their parents for the first time. Uh, you know, their parents have told them, you know, when to go to bed, what to wear, you know, who to talk to, when to do their homework, when to eat, what to eat for their whole lives. So that's the age when they're finally kind of starting to develop a sense of independence. Uh, and they're searching for three really, really important things that we all search for, every single one of us. And that's a sense of identity, community, and purpose. Uh, and, um, you know, if they have in their lives, what I call kind of these metaphorical potholes that we encounter on our life's journey, that could be trauma, they could be mental illness, they could be, uh, abuse or poverty, but even privilege, privilege can be, you know, a pothole that keeps us 
separate from, um, you know, humanity. Um, but those potholes detour us to the fringes. And at the, you know, fringes, there's all sorts of extremist narratives there. Um, you know, drug abuse is, is a form of self-extremism, suicide, uh, you know, but somebody can choose to walk into a classroom and, and, and hurt their classmates or into a church and, and target a race or a religion, uh, or they can choose to hurt themselves. Those are all, you know, manifestations of those same types of potholes uh, and different types of narratives landing on people. But that age is so important because that's when young people who are idealistic, uh, you know, who might want to change the world uh, are searching for things. And if all that perfect storm exists, um, there are people aplenty searching for them with, you know, really toxic narratives. When you were first getting pulled into the skinhead movement, did you ever... Because I know what it's like to blindly go into something as well, and there would be f- flags in my head where I was like, "Ah, this isn't necessarily right," but the acceptance and whatever kind of won it was won over. Did you ever have those moments where you're like, "Fuck, this is this is dark or this is ugly," or did you just blindly throw yourself into it? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like more often than than I than people would you know understand. I think like almost on a daily basis there were red flags. But yeah, early on for sure. I, I think it was more of like I didn't understand what I was hearing and seeing, but it felt really good to belong. Uh, it felt really good to like go from invisible to like suddenly seen. Uh, it felt good to like not be bullied anymore because I was hanging around with you know tough guys. It felt um, good to like be angsty through like the you know the music. Um, but yeah, like the things I didn't understand what I was hearing at fourteen years old. I didn't even understand you know what the world was, let alone you know what race or or you know anything like that was. Um, and then throughout, I mean, as I started to swallow it and believe it and learn it. Uh, even then, like it, it didn't make sense all the time. You would always hit something that just didn't jive, you know, like it, it just didn't feel right. It didn't sit right. But you kind of swallowed it whole because if you didn't, it wasn't really the environment to question things and you didn't want to seem like the stupid one or the weak one or, or anything like that. So you kind of bought it full parcel. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely. There were days and, you know, after days where, uh, every day, you know, it's simple as that every day it didn't sit right. There was something, but you always wore the the suit of armor to cover that up. Was that also the same with the violence? I mean, cause you had a pretty violent, you participated in a lot of violence and did you ever, feel remorse in those moments or did you just sort of put your head down and plow through those? You know, I think at first it was so foreign to me, I didn't even know what to do. Um, you know, as part of like a group of people or whatever, you, you just, I didn't know what to do, but I just did what I thought I needed to do. And that was kind of the price of admission, um, was to kind of follow along. But after, after a while, I, you know, full responsibility, I was directing some of that through, you know, uh, telling people to do it through the music that I was writing and, um, you know, through the groups that I was leading uh, and through the acts that I was committing. Most of the violence, I mean, all of the violence that I was ever involved in was, uh, mainly street fights. Um, there were, you know, never any like weapons involved in any of the violence that I committed. There were never any attacks like on that level. Uh, it was a lot of street fights, and to be quite honest, you know, it was a lot of street fights with a rival anti-anti-racist gang, which happened to be just a bunch of white kids. Um, uh, but there, you know, certainly were attacks, you know, at schools against other, you know, black students, like where I'd get a, in a fight in the hallway, uh, or you know, on the streets, you know, like a rival gang. Uh, fights like that for sure too, but uh, I was I felt guilty every time. Um, you know, especially the, you know there was one instance, um, and I'm sure you read about it if you read the, when you read the book is you know at the McDonald's restaurant when I was like in my late teens, um, and we I was with a group of skinheads uh, and I was that I was leading at the time, and we'd walked into a McDonald's uh, drunk, and there were some black teenagers. Walked in and I saw them. I, I kind of shouted at them to, you know, to get the fuck out. Uh, and, and you know, we were pretty. 
estimating there were more of us than there were of them and, and kind of chased them out and they ran out. And one of the black teenagers, when he was running across the street, um, pulled out a, a pistol and started to fire at us as we were chasing him and, and the gun jammed. Um, and uh, when we caught him, uh, I just remember kicking him and, and, you know, the group of two or three of us just beating on him. And at one point he opened his swollen eyes and, and I connected with them and, and um, uh, I still can't explain exactly what it was, but it, I had a moment of empathy for my victim at that moment. Uh, he was my victim um, and uh, I stopped. Uh, and that was the last time I actually committed a, an act of violence. Um, after that, I would use excuses to not you know, do it or to not be around or to, to not be involved. But I, I remember that one instance because it hit me so hard and it came out of nowhere and I couldn't understand the reason why, but I just uh, I felt as though that the person I was hurting at that moment could have been somebody that I cared about, somebody that I knew, my brother or uh, you know, family member that I and when you started to move out of the uh, uh, move away from the movement um was that because i remember in the book you there was moments where you were very depressed and you were lost and was it and it, it this is something i guess you also addressed in breaking hate of how it's difficult for people to move away was it did you ever feel a pull back to it or when you were out you were just like fuck it i'm done i'm moving out It was a little bit of both for me. I mean, it was extremely hard because nobody really had done it publicly before I had. Um, but it was even harder because, and there was no support. You know, there wasn't somebody like, you know, my organization to go to for help doing it. So you were on your own. Uh, but it was also extremely hard and much, much harder because starting over with a new sense of identity, community, and purpose is difficult. Uh, that had been all I had known for eight years, which, you know, from the time I was 14 till I was 23 was, uh, you know, everything, or I'm sorry, 20, yeah, uh, 14 and 23 was everything. That's everything that I had known, you know, growing up, it was my formative years, So I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I belonged. I didn't know who my family was. I'd lost my wife and my kids by that point. So I literally had no family. Um, and, um, it was, tough figuring out what I wanted to do or what I needed to do uh, or how to even ask for forgiveness. I didn't even know that I needed to or should or wanted to at that point. Um, and uh, there were never moments where I wanted to go back, but there were a lot of moments where I missed the camaraderie, where I missed the people that I had connected with kind of beneath the surface of, you know, all that hate and all that, uh, you know, violence. Uh, so that I thought about a lot, but I never once thought, you know, I missed doing what I was doing. Did you end up having to go to a lot of people and apologize? I remember there's um, the one, I believe it was the principal at your school that you apologized to. Yeah. Um, were there a number of those? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, he was the first one. So he was the head of head security guard at the, at the high school who I kind of just very randomly bumped into uh, about four years after I'd left the movement. It was, I think, 19, 1999. Uh, and I had been trying for that time to straighten out my life. You know, I had become, because I had met people uh, through a record shop that I'd owned, I'd started to meet people of color, people who were Jewish and people who were gay. And I started to humanize them instead of demonize them. I started to really connect with them through their efforts uh, to connect with me. I started to see them, you know, for the first time in my life. Uh, and I, when I closed my record store in 96, um, I went through this period of like depression and, but also like trying to be a better person. Uh, the only thing I didn't do uh, was uh, admit to my past. I tried to run from it. Uh, I, tr I moved, I tried to make new friends, I you know, found a, a job, you know, small jobs in other places. Uh, but it wasn't until 99 when I got offered a job at IBM, like this entry-level job installing computers, that I got a chance to meet uh, the old head of security at my old high school that I'd been kicked out of twice. Uh, and it was like just by fucking chance that they put me at, for my first day of work at IBM at my old high school. 
uh, to install their computers. Uh, and the guy I bumped into was, you know, the black head of security who, whose life I, I tormented, you know, the years I was there. And he was the first one to forgive me. And he was also the one to, to encourage me to forgive myself and to, to really go and find the people I'd hurt and ask them for forgiveness. And, and uh, I started to do that. Uh, not, you know, it took me a little while because I, was, I wasn't brave enough. But, you know, once I found the courage to, you know, to really admit my faults and, and to go out there and ask for forgiveness, not knowing what they would say, that's when I really started to recognize that it was the right thing to do. Um, and it was the hardest thing to do, but it was the right thing to do. And, and uh, yeah, but I'm still doing it, you know, 24 years later. With each apology, did you feel the burden that you had carried grow less? No. Uh, I don't know that I've ever felt the burden lessen. Um, you know, I think, listen, I, I think... I don't know if redemption is about like physic me physically feeling better, right? It is about uh, me acknowledging what I've done, how I've hurt people, and acknowledging if I can to the victims that I've hurt, but also acknowledging to the world what I've done. Um, but the way I deal with kind of my redemption is I, I, it doesn't absolve me from anything that I've done. I just have a different perspective of how to deal, of how to see it of how to deal with it moving forward. So I, I'm really just trying to live every day better and spread it and, and make sure other people know, um, you know, that we can really prevent so much of this just by removing, you know, so much of the, of the fear uh, that we suffer from. When did you decide or start working towards the idea of writing white American youth? Uh, it took me 10 years white American youth uh, and it, it has been published three times uh, the first two times I self-published it oh, um, really? under the name romantic violence yeah under ro romantic violence uh, and I just so here's here's what happened I think I started writing in 2006 um, I finished writing it in 2016 I self-published no I'm sorry 2000 I started writing it. Self-published first time in 2014, I believe. Uh, just for friends and family, I think I just did 50 copies for like my close friends and, and family, uh, and they encouraged me to, you know, like release it. So I self-published it again um, a year, um, about less than a year later, and um, the publisher saw it. They really liked it. And they wanted to republish it, and that's uh, White American Youth. That that is the updated, uh, released version of, of Romantic Violence: Memoirs of an American Skinhead, which is the original title. Um, first of all, that's just you just did the fucking punk rock thing, and you did it yourself, <laughs> which is which is great. <laughs> I thought, you know, like I come from a DIY background. You know, I'll let you know that. Yeah, I, I and it, it's great to see. I just love when people do that, and then it succeeds, and it gets attention, and that's that always encourages me and everybody else I know who's creative because uh, you know I think we live in a DIY society more than ever. Um, what was the yeah. impetus to write the book? Were you trying to just uh, ex share your experience to help others, or did you just need to get it off your chest? You know, I, when I originally wrote it, just to share with friends and family, it was to kind of memorialize it. Um, it was, uh, you know, looking back, maybe it was even a little bit selfish. It was just to kind of like put it out there. Um, and, and to own it and to be accountable for it. Um, so I didn't really write it to, to try and help anybody but me at first. Um, you know, not from a financial sense or anything like that because it's still not the case. But, um, it, you know, then I think when I polished it up to release it the second time, that's when I thought, you know, like if this is going to help people, then I want to put you know, more of a message in there that's, that, you know, people can use outside of my story. Uh, and that's when, you know, when I published White American Youth uh, as my memoir, that's when, you know, the idea for breaking hate really took form um, because I'd been doing this disengagement work, helping people disengage from extremism for years uh, at that point. And people always ask, like, what, what can I do? What can I say to my brother or to my son or to, you know, my girlfriend or, 
you know, my coworker who I know is involved in this stuff. Like, what can I do to help them? Uh, and I've been helping hundreds and hundreds of people do this work. And I thought, you know, this is really something that anybody can do because it's not rocket science. It's really just about human connection. Uh, and, um, you know, people, it's less about ideology than people think, and people are scared off by that part. Uh, rightfully so, I think, because one, we, you know, it is a foul that kills people and, and you know, has been involved in the, um, you know, victimizing people for, for generations. But people aren't born to hate. They learn how to do it uh, for some reason. And if, it can, if it's learned, they can unlearn it. And that's how I approach breaking hate through the stories of people that I've helped disengage from hate. I talk about how they found their way in, but also what we did to, to get them out. Um, you talk a lot in the book about how, how to approach people, to, to talk to people and who are radicalized. And I think it's, we live in such a argumentative time where I just feel like social media, like I just posted a joke on Facebook the other day and I, it blew up into some fucking nightmare of arguments. And I was like, this is just a dumb joke. Every, but like, why, why do you think we're in this mind frame right now? Cause even in the book you wrote, you wrote even decisive political uh, rhetoric has been cr- credited to the recent surge in hate related activity, which I, that line really stuck out to me because I feel like we're in such a, divisive separated era yeah i mean we are man we really are living and you know even more so like here we are kind of homebound you know because of covid19 we're even more isolated now right from each other and people are using uh, you know the virus and and xenophobic ways and and, you know hate crimes against asian americans are increasing and you know it's there's always, when there's uncertainty in the world, um, that's when we see extremism rise because it's really, un- it's uncertainty in your situation and yourself uh, in who you can trust uh, in, you know, the situation ahead that really leads people into these very, you know, kind of out of the box, uh, broken ideological systems um, because we're trying to make order of things. And, you know, these groups falsely, uh, promise it. They promise order when there's uncertainty. And they also blame somebody. They very clearly delineate who is to blame for those problems that are happening um, when people are, you know, it's like a lottery ticket uh, in some ways uh, for people, or like a drug, you know, in other ways too, where people, you know, do it, they know it's wrong and they know it, it kills people, but at the same time, it's really tough to break away because of that, the reward that they're getting from that identity community purpose part that I was talking about. Um, but yeah, you know, we're, we are in economic, you know, socioeconomically uncertain times right now. We're in politically divisive times, uh, and everybody's choosing whether they're being forced to or choosing to, they're, they're choosing a team. Uh, and there are a lot of voices on the teams sometimes are the ones who are the most extreme and, and the most violent. And sometimes they get the most attention in, in uncertain times, uh, and it's a dangerous kind of place that we're in right now. We are kind of a tinderbox for, for this in, in so many ways. And, you know, virus on top of that uh, is not going to make things any easier because um, that's also uncertainty. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be really uniting. <laughs> it's like It seems like it should be a time where we're all like, all right, everybody, let's get together. And it still seems like it's very much like it's us, it's them, it's Republican, it's Democrat, it's left, it's right. And, uh, it's just, it just seems like it just is stirring everybody's anger pot. Yeah, no, I mean, I think until, you know, I think until people have a little bit more certainty and and some answers to lingering questions of, you know, are there going to be enough supplies to treat the sick? Are we doing the right things? Are we learning the lessons from the countries like Italy or China before us, uh, you know, dealt with this? I think until people feel safe, um, again, uncertainty, we don't know. So I think that's causing a lot of friction. Uh, but yeah, you know, I hate to see this stuff politicized when people are dying literally every day. Like, you know, I don't know how many people died in Italy today, but yesterday was 700. The day before.
before that it was 700. I mean, this is not this is not the kind of trend we want to be on. This is real stuff. Uh, so, um, you know, I hope we, we can find a way to kind of bond together through uh, our shared brokenness right now, and, and instead of trying to find ways to, to blame anybody, let's just figure it out and do our part. And and that seems to be in your book that that we all have a shared brokenness and that's how we need to view like when you approach somebody who's been radicalized you said to to look at them as they're as they were when they were a child and not the person they have become which i think is um a rare thing to to hear these days because i think people really hold everyone for who they exactly are in this current moment and don't look at what led them to be who they are yeah, that's probably the hardest concept in my book, I think, is to see the child and not the monster. Um, you know, but I can tell you it doesn't matter if that if that child is 16 or 60. Um, they, at one point, were normal, you know, well, you know, balanced, not violent, not hateful, and at some point that changed. Uh, and, and we need to kind of go backwards to figure out what the motivations are for why people hate. Uh, because nobody's born hate, um, you know, and, you know, it's, it is kind of like a drug. It's, it numbs you. It provides some sense of comfort and, and control, uh, you know, while it also is toxic and, and, you know, we're very well aware it hurts people. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's, we have to learn to see that, that broken child and recognize, you know, that we all have levels of brokenness. Some are more broken than others, but we are all broken. Uh, you know, we're all dealing with something that nobody else knows about that we're having trouble, you know, kind of surmounting or struggle with. Um, and if we can recognize that we all have that, we can unite in that shared brokenness. And that can be the, the glue, the universal glue that kind of brings us back together. Um, you know, we blame each other for so many things that, you know, I've never met you, Matt. I've never met you in my life. You know, we've, we've emailed a couple of times. There's nothing you could possibly do that would, you know, affect my life if you didn't know me, if you were a stranger, right? So why do we blame each other, people we don't know, for the things that happen in our lives? We want to blame anybody. Maybe it's the ones who are profiting off of all the bad things that are happening in our lives. Yeah. Is it hard when you're when you're dealing with somebody who's been radicalized to to constantly see that you're looking for the child when you hear them still reacting from their hate? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's easier for me than, than most people because I, I, you know, I used to say those words. I know, you know, how ridiculous it sounds in my ears now and where that, those kind of words came from. Um, but I also hold people accountable. Like I don't, you know, like just because I say see the child and not the monster doesn't mean if somebody continues to be a monster that they're not going to be held accountable for that. Uh, nor should they, you know, stop being held accountable for their past. I think we all have to make amends. You know, some people did very, you know, atrocious, atrocious things. Some people, you know, just went along with something atrocious and didn't necessarily, you know, physically or or hurt anybody you know there are different levels of this but uh everybody's accountable uh, and i don't nobody gets a free pass when i work with them um but you know it's uh, everybody's complicated too and, it, and it's um, it's not always so cut and dry uh some people need prof- you know professional help uh, some people you know are dealing with uh trauma from their childhood you know abuse sexual abuse physical abuse you know, even years before they found, you know, the movement that that would be a pothole that may have led them there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm you're really trying to just listen. Uh, you know, I do a lot of listening uh, and I listen for potholes and then I just basically try and fill them in with uh, with anybody who's willing to help. Uh, how did you land into this work? Was it a, a natural organic progression from from your first book or did it did you one day decide like i'm actively going to help people get out of these situations well i've, I've been doing that disengagement work for a little over 15 years so um even when white american youth came out of my memoir i'd already been doing that work the idea for writing breaking hate um really kind of came in, in just the last 
you know, few years to because I've been getting such an influx of people asking for help with somebody that they cared about who was involved, and and uh, I wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they could do this work. It doesn't just take a former extremist. I may be a good bridge builder because I've been where these people, and, and to some degree, they trust you know my credibility. Um, but you know, it's also something that we should all be doing. We all are, you know, have an active part in, in breaking hate. This, uh, you know, a human connection again. It's not a, an ideological thing. I never debate anybody ideologically. I don't ever even tell them that they're wrong, even though, of course, I know that they are. Uh, but I listen, and when I listen for those potholes, I tell you, I hear them, and then it's just a matter of finding people. Uh, to help you fill them in, whether job trainers, life coaches, uh, therapists, uh, family members, faith groups, whatever you know it is about replacing the identity, community, and purpose uh, in somebody, um, that's who can help, and that's all of us. Have you been having more people reach out to you over the last few years? Because it seems like, I feel like the racism definitely is, ex- it's just... It, it, it's always been there in our country. It just seems louder and more prevalent and more yeah. up to the front. Is it, are you getting more people reaching out for help because of that as well? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I tell you, my first mission was an accident. It was in 2000. I was in a mall. I was walking through the mall and I still had one of my old uh, tattoos that were visible on my forearm. And a guy walked up to me in the mall and he said, Hey bro, nice tattoo, white power. And I talked to him for like 15 minutes and I wasn't even doing interventions at that point in 2000, but it was like, you know, when we were done talking, the guy was cool. And he was like, Hey man, you know, it's cool that you got out. I give you a lot of respect for that. And, you know, he gave me something to think about and he walked away and I never heard from him. You know, I didn't know who he was. I never heard from him again. But, you know, that was like my first unofficial intervention. Uh, and years, you know, a couple of years later when I started doing it, like officially, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's been kind of driving me. That's one way that I can help dismantle what I helped build, you know, uh, you know, so long ago. Do you, I, something I've been curious about is, do, I see a lot of people, um, say that the current presidential administration is they send a lot of signals and flags that go to the alt-right and the white supremacist movement. I don't, yeah. is that true? Cause I mean, I don't know what the, a lot of those signals or symbols would be. Um, I've seen pictures. Yeah. Of, you, you yeah. Think, yeah, and I want to answer your. I forgot to totally answer your last question. Yes, there are there are more people coming to me now, <laughs> because one, I think we understand it more. We're talking about it more. You know, certainly in the media. I don't ever remember like during my time like hearing about it in the media unless it was like Geraldo or you know Jerry Springer, um, uh, you know, or Oprah. You know, had had skinheads on back in those days, or there was like a crime committed. But nowadays, it's like you know you can't turn on news anywhere, any kind of news about hearing about white nationalism because it is a threat. It is killing people. So yes, naturally, you know, more people are understanding what's going on, more people are coming to me. But, you know, they're learning about it, not just through the media. People are becoming recruited into it because of what's happening in our political spectrum right now. You know, things like when, you know, the president, uh, you know, will say things like the Chinese virus versus, you know, COVID-19 or coronavirus to like very clearly you know, paint it in a different light, right? That is contributing to this. Things like, you know, retweeting uh, known conspiracy theories that are coming from white nationalists is a problem when it comes from the president. Uh, it's, it's you know, the thing, the policies, um, you know, are, are something I would have cheered about 30 years ago when I was involved uh, in, in, you know, in the movement. So, yeah, you know, I think that there are some accountability that has to fall squarely on you know, what is happening uh, and what, you know, types of policies and, and stances the administration is, uh, has, you know, not, not least the people it employs, right, in some of its positions of power who have known ties to, you know, white nationalism. Why do you think that when it's in the media, uh, when it's white nationalists, it's never labeled or so very rarely labeled as terrorist? Because that it drives a lot of people nuts, and I'm like, why? When it's a bigger threat in the United States than yeah. ISIS or any anything else, yeah. it's because it's more complicated. 
is in that, and I agree with you. It's, it should be called terrorism. I, it should be fall squarely into that camp because what that does is it unlocks all sorts of resources. Not only that, it, it also helps with kind of the, the the framing of it, right? Like you know the equity of terrorism, uh, for lack of a, a better term. Um, but it, it's complicated because terrorism, domestic terrorism laws don't exist on the books right now. We have international terrorism laws, and in order for something to be classified as terrorism now, it has to be tied to an international designated terrorist organization. Uh, so there are, there's only, there are very few, if any, uh, white supremacist or white nationalist designated terrorist organizations internationally. I think the UK did name one last year. Uh, but so by legal definition, in the legal sense, you can't even, there's no way to charge something as terrorism uh, unless it is tied to foreign terrorism. So when you see, you know, like um, ISIS-inspired terrorism, it's easy to, to say, you know, something like even the, the Pulse nightclub, you know, you could say, well, that guy was a, potentially a sympathizer of, you know, the Islamic State or whatever, you can classify that as terrorism. Whereas somebody like Dylan Roof or, um, you know, the Pittsburgh shooter or any of, you know, gosh, the dozens that we've experienced in just the last you know, year, um, it's the best they can do is hate crimes. Uh, it's a federal hate crime on those, which carry pretty stiff penalties, but certainly don't unlock the same resources that, that terrorism does, where you can, you know, it unlocks like, all kinds of penalties and, and also um, things that law enforcement can do uh, to investigate them. Right, because they still have to treat them just like any other American right now when they investigate them. Whereas if they were a terrorist operating in America, well, they're a little bit a little bit looser with, with what they can do, you know, in terms of investigating these groups. So until they designate these groups as foreign terrorist organizations, which they can, because those transnational connections exist, uh, we won't hear about them being called terrorists. We can do it in the media, but it won't mean much in, in the legal court. Does that seem crazy to you? <laughs> I mean, it's... It seems crazy. Well, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and it should. And I suspect that they will. Uh, they will absolutely start naming these organizations. Uh, at, you know, there are, you know, some very clear organizations. The thing is, is, the group names change all the time. So you name an organization and they change their name, then suddenly they're not on the list anymore. And um, white supremacist groups are notorious for doing that. Uh, so, you know, like I said, it's complicated, but I think it will happen eventually. Very in the, in the near future, we'll see terrorism laws change to include domestic terrorism statutes. Do they change their name intentionally? Is that a just sort of to keep a step ahead of everything, or is that just uh, is that an intentional thing? Yeah. Part of, part of it is because they're trying to stay, uh, you know, step ahead of law enforcement. Part of it is because it's a pissing contest because it's all ego driven and groups split up and you know guys go to war with each other within the movement and try to start their own group and uh, or you know law enforcement will take down part of it and the other guys uh, and, and gals will go start you know a new division. Sometimes it's a, a ploy to seem more mainstream. You know there are groups like Identity Europa which are you know very white nationalist and you know have changed their name to the American Identity Movement which sounds a little bit more, you know, like a Republican group or something like that. Uh, so, and which that's their target market. They're going after young college campus conservatives uh, into this whole European, the European identity and America kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, various reasons. Do you think they go after a different type of person? Because you said, like, they're going after conservative college students, and I feel like... Um Back in the '90s, because you, I also, do you know uh, Frankie Mink, who is also a former skinhead who wrote, uh, I forget the name. I do. Because um, I asked him about this I years do. ago. Uh, that were they going, like in your day, would they more go after a vulnerable sort of kid on the outside? Where now they're going after more conservative college kids. Has the, their recruiting changed, or is it basically the same? Uh, well, it's basically the same, but it's changed because the internet is here now, and it wasn't around when I was around or when Frank was getting 
recruited. Uh, so, you know, it was easier for for recruiters back in those days to go after the kids on the streets that were hanging out in alleys, you know, skate parks, punk rock shows, kids that looked like they, you know, lived on the street, uh, you know, kids that had problems. It was easier to spot those kids. You knew where to go to find them and then <laughs> recruit them. Uh, these days, the internet, well, it's got millions of those fucked up kids uh, that hang out on their phones and their computers all day. They play video games and do all kinds of stuff. And it's become kind of like a 24-hour all-you-can-eat hate buffet. Uh, and, like, you know, there are recruiters talking to our kids over headsets when they're playing multiplayer video games. There are algorithms that, you know, like if you type in a couple of search words, you watch a couple of stupid, you know, racist memes, all of a sudden, well, guess what? That's your recommended videos that are coming up in your feed now. Um, you know, they're, it's much more efficient, let me just say that. Uh, technology has really changed the way that people are being recruited because it's, it's become a lot of self-radicalization in some cases. You know, where it gives people the kickstart to move in that direction and then physical recruiters come into play and reel people in. Uh, but they're looking for, you know, idealistic, uh, I call them marginalized seekers in my book, but like, you know, idealistic, broken, uh, you know, kids uh, who are searching for identity, community, and purpose like we all are, but they're a little bit more broken. They're a little bit more uh, unsure. So, you know, it might be a little bit easier to convince them. And, you know, frankly, there are millions of those kids hanging out on the internet every day who are, um, you know, at, at risk, I think, uh, young or old, let's face it, you know, like it, it doesn't really discriminate on age, but um, who are searching and are, are landing in these narratives and they're starting to believe these conspiracy theories and they're starting to develop these racist ideas and they're starting to, you know, talk about them online. Um, internet is, is really kind of a, a breeding ground or can be a breeding ground for this if we're not careful. How many of those uh, people online are, are trolls? Because in your book, there's a, the, the guy who goes after Cassandra and she, he's, it's a completely fake uh, individual is that a very common approach as well yeah i mean unfortunately he was a real individual with a fake profile and identity uh but yeah um it's very common you know i think so much of what we're seeing especially you know like his comments on social media as you know posts on social media so much of that is being fabricated by bots um, you know, I think the the attacks are real coming from real people, but I think a lot of the information that uh, we have the potential to consume is coming from really nasty places. Uh, and, it is, you know, because we're real people and we're humans, sometimes it lands and we consume it. And, um, you know, it's getting to be the point where we're losing idea of what truth is and once we lose that i'm really afraid that we may not identify it again so we have to really fight to keep truth alive uh, because um, you know, once it's gone it's going to be hard to get back um, so yeah i mean i think we have to be careful you know you know assume it's a real person but also assume it can be you know some bot or some person pretending to be somebody that is actually sitting in st petersburg russia uh, or in uh, you know China or in somewhere else. Is that very common that it's a, is it a, when it's a foreign troll like that, is that a com, a conscious effort to sort of fuck with, uh, for a lack of better articulation with America to turn more people yeah. into white nationalists? Is that like a, a conscious thing, movement? Yeah, well, well, I don't want to sound paranoid. Let, let, no, well, less here. Here's the thing: it's less so to turn them into white nationalists, more so to sow discord on what they know are open wounds that America suffers from. Um, so, yeah, most of them are sitting in Eastern Europe and Russia. Um, you know, there are different kinds of trolls for different occasions. I think most of the the racist ones we're seeing right now, the vast vast majority are the you know are coming from Eastern Europe and from from Russia. Um, but their job is to, you know, pretend to be Americans in most cases. In some cases, they're not just being white nationalists. They're, they're Black Lives Matter. They're pretending to be feminists. They're pretending to be Bernie bros. They're doing all sorts of stuff just to stir the pot, just to inflame, you know, these, these wounds that they know we have, things like racism, things like, you know, uh, you know female inequity, uh, the idea that we, you know, have promoted female inequity and that women are finally starting to get up the voice that they've deserved or, you know, they, they 
are just really trying to rip us at the seams, uh, you know, in all different directions. I was surprised to read that Richard Spencer's wife is a is a is Putin's propagandist, or is he, I think I may have just gotten that slightly wrong. Is that is there? No, I mean you got it pretty much right. <laughs> She's a Putin propagandist. <laughs> She's a Putin propagandist. She she was a a, a correspondent for RT, which is uh, you know Russia's television yeah. uh, state-owned television network. That you know, unfortunately, in some places in the United States, you can turn on your cable network and, and watch Russian propaganda. Uh, and it's, it's uh, if you ever get a chance, watch it because uh, it's like watching cops twenty four hours a day because all they show are is the worst of the worst of the worst of America and say that this is what America is. Uh, uh, maybe in some cases they're not too far off base, but. Um, uh, yeah, no. She she also is uh, was the translator for Alexander Dugan and translated some of his uh, you know pretty kind of prominent white nationalist ethno nationalist works. And uh, Alexander Dugan is uh, said to be a close associate of, of Putin. Uh, you know, some people even call him uh, you know Putin's uh, mouthpiece. Uh, so you know, the things run deep. But you got to read the book to read that story. Yeah, it's is there a lot of is that common that there's a connection between the alt right and and Russians or is that just a few instances? You know, yes, there are absolutely connections. Those are you know connections that have been being forged for decades. Uh, most people don't know, but David Duke uh, actually lived in Moscow for a few years. Um, uh, you know, most people don't know that like. They've been have holding conferences there and really building up, you know, uh, Western uh, white nationalism because it's anti-democratic, right? So white nationalists, most people think like, oh, you know, they're these like, you know, redneck, patriotic redneck. No, they're not. They are anti-democratic, anti-Western values. They want uh, to destroy progress and social justice. Uh, it's authoritarian. Uh, so, you know, Putin is very good about supporting stuff like that around, around the world. Um, and uh, he's done a very good job of, of his, uh, of his uh, you know, emissaries kind of propping up these far-right uh, politicians in many cases around the world in places like Hungary and Slovakia uh, and France and uh, the U.K. Uh, and, uh, you know, is getting very, very cozy with American white nationalists, too. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of holding hands in that world between uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin, and uh, white nationalism around the world. Um, to sort of go back to, I wanted to, to something I did want to cover is um, your writing in both of your books is is incredible. And did you before you wrote White American Youth? Okay. I know you wrote a lot of music and lyrics. Fuck yeah, Chicago. <laughs> That's Chicago. <laughs> Man, your your words are spitting your words are spitting fire, my friend. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm just fascinated with your technique as a writer and how you arrived because your your prose are incredible. Like you're it's just I, I, yeah, it's just an amazing, and I don't know if that was something you worked towards or if that's you just happened to be a, a gifted man. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, really, that means a lot. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I, it, it is hard work. I am not, writing does not come easy to me. Um, like I said, I spent 10 years writing my first book and it was published three times. And by the third time it was published, I had a lot of practice, uh, you know, writing about something that was very kind of near and dear to me, which was my life. Uh, so in that sense, it was a little bit easier. And, and I went into it thinking, like, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be genuine. I'm going to say it, and you know, in, in both the words that I used during that time, because you'll see the progression of how, like, my language changes in white American youth from when I was younger. Uh, I was honest about the language I used then and, and the ideas that I was thinking. Uh, and then as I, you know, went on, that language changes a little bit because I changed as a person. Um and, uh, you know, I've always loved art. I'm a music guy, um, dabbled in all sorts of, you know, art and, and things like that. Uh, so I just, I wanted it to be honest and beautiful and I tried, uh, everything I, I could to do that. And thank you for recognizing that, you know, at least to you, I was successful. 
Uh, I mean, I read a, a lot of memoirs, and if, in general, I read, and it's just the the writing is just incredible, and I, it blew me away, and it was definitely something I wanted to uh, praise and address, and I hope everyone goes out um, and uh, reads everything you. I, do, are you working on any new books, or do you have anything in mind that you? Oh man, uh, my. My wife has put a moratorium on it for a little while because I'm, I was a bit of a. I, can, I, I tend to become a bit of an asshole and very like detail oriented when I'm like in the stages and I just stress out a lot. So I was not pleasant to be around. I'm sure for the last like couple months of, of writing the book uh, or editing the book. Uh, and uh, and uh, but if I were to write two more books, well, you know, if I were to write again, uh, I would want to write a series of children's books. Uh, focused on, you know, this idea of, uh, social justice and hate. Um, but also, uh, I want to, I want to write a fictional book. I would love to write a novel too. I think at some point, I, th- um, I thought about I don't know that. if I'll ever get a chance to do that, but. Oh, see that I thought about that when I was reading your book because the writing was so vivid and great. I was like, this guy should write a novel. <laughs> so, so, uh, <laughs> well, thank the, you. That, um, is and I think the children's book is I think that's great. We try to find and I think there's more of, of it now, but it's still hard to find like socially conscious books that educate your kids on uh, it's not as prevalent as it should be or maybe we're just looking in the wrong spots but yeah um, but I think we need well, I've got this I, I, you know it's, it's, you know the perspectives are, are different you know and hopefully you know writing from maybe being that child to, you know, other people, you know, I, hopefully I can find a way to lend a different perspective. I don't know that I can do it, man. I gotta, I gotta believe it's harder to write 500 words than it is to write, you know, 50,000. Um, because trying to get what you want to say in that few words has gotta be really fucking hard. Yeah. So we'll I, see. I think about that a lot when I read my daughter's books to her, I'm like, this has gotta be a fucking nightmare. Cause it's so concise. And so it's just gotta be so brief. Yeah. And it's, it seems like a real labor. The antithesis, the antithesis of like my normal writing style. You know, it's like <laughs> how do I say it in, in as few words as possible versus like oh shit, no, here I go. <laughs> um, and I don't, I, I, I hate when this. I ask this question of two writers, but it also because it to me it demeans the work. But to me, it seems like uh, breaking hate could be a, a a series, and white American youth could be a film. Do have any of those sort of. Um, offers arised in, in, because they're such riveting. Both of them are riveting. Wow. Uh, again, thank you. Uh, you know, it's always been kind of, uh, and I, after people have read it, people have kind of talked about that. Um, I don't know. We'll see what the future holds. I mean, I think, uh, I think it could work. I think white American youth would make, uh, could make a, you know, a great screen, you know, uh, film, um, but I think breaking hate, um, and you know, I, I guess in a sense, the MSNBC series breaking hate that I did, the, the trilogy of three episodes, was sort of that, sort of the book breaking hate with not the same subjects. Uh, one of them, however, was the same. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. If you have any writers or producers <laughs> that are listening, maybe somebody else I, I get an idea and hit me up. But you know, my life's crazy, and I don't I don't think it'll ever stop getting being crazy. So there'll always be interesting things to talk about. I think. Uh, and just as a total side thing, away from the other topics, is Chicagoans. How, how do you feel when people shit talk Chicago pizza? Because it fucking infuriates me. <laughs> They've, they've never had it. That's the only thing that I can come up with is they've truly never had it. Right. And like, I get it. Like deep dish pizza is an acquired thing. Like, you, you know, you can work your way up to it. You've been eating flimsy, you know, floppy pizza your whole life. You know, this big pie cut, you know, crap, crap that they have in, in New York. I stopped, I've been going to New York my whole life. I love New York. It's a great city. I've eaten amazing food there. I still cannot find a good slice of pizza there. Somebody, please, I want to have good New York pizza. I just can't figure out where to get it. Uh, um, but I can tell you, I can, I can, I can name you know a dozen off the top of my head Chicago pizza places that are to die for. What, what are some of your favorites? Oh 
man. Well, I mean, for a deep dish, Lou Malnati's, I think, is my favorite with the butter crust. Classic Lou with pepperoni and sausage. Uh, but thin crust, I really, you know, I like it cracker thin. And, and my current favorite uh, is a place called Flo and Santos. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it's anytime somebody shit talks deep dish pizza, I'm like, you probably had one at an airport or some shitty tourist spot. You haven't had it, yeah. And it's like, it doesn't count. It, I uh, yeah. And the Giordano's in Phoenix, Arizona doesn't count. It doesn't count. Phoenix, Arizona Giordano's does not count as Chicago pizza. It may be a Chicago restaurant in a different place. It is not authentic. In my opinion, Chicago pizza. So don't. Yeah, you're right, man. <laughs> shitty airport deep dish slice. Through O'Hare does not count as Chicago pizza. You have to actually step foot into a Chicago pizza place. Um, do you have a, a preferred uh, Italian beef spot? Oh, see now, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> I'm in quarantine. You know, it, yeah, it's uh, that's a I, you know beef sandwiches. I'm a connoisseur, man. I really love a good beef sandwich. I would say if like you're going chain beef, a Buona beef is my favorite, but a Portillo's is not bad either. Right. Um, an Al's beef is a different kind of Chicago Italian beef, in my opinion. Uh, and you have to have kind of like a, a taste for it for that. It's not bad, but it's different. Um, but you know, if you're looking for like a really good, like classic, Italian beef from Chicago and nobody from Chicago knows what the fuck we're talking about right now. Or nobody who's not from Chicago knows what the fuck we're talking about right now. Cause, uh, but the Jardinera and the bread are so important in the beef sandwich. Um, oh man, Mr. Beef is good. I like Mr. Beef. I think. Yeah. Mr. Beef is one I try to hit when I'm back at home. Well, that was the important yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, real quick, Christian, where can uh, everyone find uh, your your website, your social media, where can they find you so they can uh, purchase your books and which are must-reads? Well, thank you very much. And they can go to the very easy to spell christianpicciolini.com. Uh, no, I mean, if they really want to, I'm pretty uh, easy to find, but they can go to christianpicciolini.com. I'm sure in your podcast you will spell my name correctly. Yes, I will. Uh, but, uh, or they can just go to, to Breaking Hate dot com and that will take you to a page on my website where you can check out the rest of my website and links to purchase the books check out my ted talk all sorts of things even maybe some clips from the msnbc uh tv show breaking hate uh but yeah man it's been awesome thanks for having me i appreciate it thank you very much i i appreciate you taking out the time i know you're a busy guy always a pleasure hey man you're from chicago so you know it's all i always uh, you, t- you take a priority i don't prioritize many things in my life but people from chicago still rank number one in my book so i, I do you're too. always good with me Matt. anytime somebody's moved from <laughs> chicago to la i'm like we have to reach out and make sure they're comfortable and you know find the proper places <laughs> find out where to eat yeah well my best friend my best friend lives in LA too, and he's a Chicago guy. And I never thought he'd leave, but he left, and he's been there for I think I don't know, twelve years, thirteen years, or something like that. And he loves it there, so I don't know. There's something to it, but you know, you guys lose your taste for the weather. Uh, you kind of become pussy when you when you come back here because it's cold. I haven't been in uh, below thirty in uh, in f- fucking sixteen years, I think. I have a high it's uh, 40 degrees right now 41 oh, I, degrees outside my window right now. I look at uh, Chicago weather every every morning just to see what I what I'm missing or what I'm not missing <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah well let, let me know when you dip below us and then I'll count on you we actually well I live outside of LA and I live near the foothills so we can get uh, we can get into the 30s which is uh, surprising oh, okay alright yeah it's not you know but it's that's a respectable that's a respectable <laughs> low number but it's not quite you know alright let me ask you this though and I don't want to put you on the spot I gotta, I gotta ask you a parting question okay why do they call it the Windy City because of the uh, politicians 
in their big fucking mouths. Oh, see, now you're a true Chicagoan. <laughs> you're a true Chicagoan. Thank you very much, sir. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. <laughs> we will enjoy that beef sandwich. I appreciate you having the, the correct answers because our politicians are full of hot air and full of shit. So I, thank you very much. My, uh, the thing I loved about the opening of your book is that it takes place in Manny's. And I was like, all right, this is... Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, and anytime I'm home, uh, I, you got it. I hit the original Billy Goat because I'm a, a huge Mike Royko fan, and I, I feel like it's... Uh, I have to go... It's like going to church to pay tribute to Mike Royko. Yeah, it's like you feel like Spence Turkle like when you eat at those old-fashioned places. Like you put a pencil in your ear and a fedora on your hat and a little press badge in the in the rim of it like I did when I was <laughs> six year old and you go eat a terrible burger from a really, you know, kind of a dumpy place, but it's Chicago and you love it. I I yeah uh, good I, for you, man. I saw Royko stumble out of there drunk once when I was like about eighteen and I was it was like to, to me it was like seeing John Lennon. I was like that's the that's as good as it's gonna oh, get Oh yeah. Uh, and Hammond. Yeah. Royko. Yeah. Miss him miss him of course. Of course. Again, if you're not from Chicago, we apologize for the conversation that we are having right now because you have no idea what the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> All right, my friend. It was good talking to you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you Take very care. much. You too. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please remember to rate and review the show, thematdwyer.com, Patreon, dot com slash matt dwyer help support the show tell your friends about it and support podcasting in general it's a great form and i would like to say in the words of one of my favorite guests former black panther pete o'neill power to the people